Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the project on global economic liberty. Economists have been theorizing about what causes the wealth of nations for hundreds of years, but it hasn't been until relatively recently that they've begun using the wealth of data that has been accumulated to actually begin looking at, at the factors that lead to wealth creation in a systematic and in an empirical way, which is why I'm very pleased today to have the two lead authors of uh, two reports that I think uh, follow that tradition best. And of course I'm talking about Jim Gwartney, uh, the author of the Economic Freedom of the World Report, and of Simeon Jankoff, the lead author of the Doing Business uh, Report series of the World Bank. Uh, the first report, Economic Freedom uh, of the World, is really a broad measure of policies and institutions uh, in countries around the world over the course of several decades. The second report, the Doing Business uh, Report, is a much narrow, has a much narrower focus on taxes and regulations and the kind of things that affect entrepreneurship. And both have been quite influential uh, uh, precisely because they're practical, especially for policymakers. Uh, both show uh, where a country has uh, improved or deteriorated uh, both offer an objective way to compare countries' progress uh, uh, among each other, and both have uh, provided an incentive uh, for countries to improve in their uh, policies, uh, to improve their rankings in each index. Um, the, the reports have also uh, proven to be a tremendous uh, resource tool for researchers who uh, want to establish the relationship between, say, economic freedom factors and the whole range of outcomes, whether it's growth or corruption or the informal sector and, and so on. Uh, so you can see that our speakers today are not only uh, two, two economists who've done quite a bit to advance our knowledge of what leads to economic development, but they're actually doing something uh, that has helped to promote the kinds of policies that lead uh, to wealth creation. And anybody who doubts the importance of this kind of work needs only to go to virtually any uh, developing or transition uh, country and uh, see that uh, still a large share of the economy and employment in, in these countries is in the informal sector. And I like to mention the informal economy because I think it's the single best indicator in a country that something is wrong with the policies and institutions of that country. And indeed, both indexes show through their data that the lack of economic freedom is fairly uh, well correlated with uh, high levels of, of informality, uh, a fact that is often uh, overlooked by people uh, who would claim that uh, somehow the, f the free market has been tried and failed in places like Latin America or Russia, or that it's impractical in certain poor countries. At bottom, both, country, both studies uh, go a long way in answering the big development uh, question, and that is uh, that ultimately uh, the problems that are so related to, to poverty, uh, disease, and so on uh, are not going to be resolved without sustained growth of the kind that comes from implementing the, the policies that both reports talk about. So let me introduce Jim Gwartney and the Economic uh, Freedom of the World Report. 
The Economic Freedom of the World Report is a, is a uh, publication that comes out of the Fraser Institute in Canada and in which the Cato Institute is uh, proud to participate as its publisher here in the United States. It's a project that began some uh, two decades ago when Michael Walker, the, the director of that uh, institute, asked the question about uh, how can we measure economic freedom, and that led to... Uh, a series of seminars with some of the world's leading economists, Milton Friedman, Doug North, Gary Becker, and so on, to try to answer that question. And how, how It's not an easy thing to measure economic freedom. So it took at least a decade of seminars and publications, books, uh, considering this topic before the first uh, Economic Freedom of the World report came out about 10 years ago. And that's when uh, think tanks like the Cato Institute began publishing it, and now we have about 70 uh, groups around the world publishing this report. Jim Gortney is the lead author. He is also a Cato adjunct scholar. He is a professor of economics at Florida State uh, University. He has been the chief economist for the Joint Economic Committee in Congress. He is the author of a, a very popular uh, textbook in economics. Uh, it's called Economics Private and Public Choice. He is the author of uh, uh, at least one other well-selling book, Common Sense Economics, What Everyone Should Know About Wealth and Prosperity. And he is a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. He is also published in the leading uh, economic journals. As I mentioned, the most important aspect of his curriculum is that he's a Cato adjunct scholar. Uh, please help me welcome uh, Jim Gordon. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure for me to uh, uh, be here today and appear at a forum uh, sponsored by the Cato Institute. And I'd just like to say that I appreciate the uh, uh, support of both the Cato Institute and Ian Vasquez uh, through the years. And uh, we've had a great uh, uh, working relationship, and it's uh, always a pleasure to, to return to the Cato Institute. I'd also say that it, it's a, a real pleasure and uh, an honor for me to be on the same program with uh, Simeon and his leadership that he's offered with regard to the Doing Business uh, Indicators Project. I think that is the uh, one of the very most important projects that's certainly taken place in the last 10 years. Uh, I was going to say since the uh, development of the Economic Freedom Index, but maybe that sounds a little bit too uh, self-serving. But it is a very important project and one that has influenced my own thought process with regard to what matters with regard to uh, uh, institutions and how to better get at the importance of uh, uh, particularly the regulatory and uh, legal system uh, side of these factors that influence uh, economic freedom and the freedom of individuals to exchange with each other. Well, Simeon, it's just a, a real pleasure for me to uh, have the honor of being on a, on a forum with you. Uh, as Ian mentioned, the Economic Freedom Project goes back a decade in terms of the publication. It actually goes back two decades in terms of the work uh, uh, on it. And I would really like to do three things in, in my presentation, and maybe uh, I might add a fourth to it. Uh, first, I'd, I want to briefly explain the uh, uh, construction of the Economic Freedom of the World Index, and we'll look at some of the numbers in the new index that uh, most of you are aware just came out about a week ago. And secondly, I want to think with you about why it is that nations prosper and how that relates to uh, uh, economic freedom. And then I want to look at some of the uh, 
uh, indicators of the relationship between economic freedom and prosperity. And then lastly, as kind of a maybe a, 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 a additional point, uh, to look at uh, the relationship between re regulation and, and legal structure because I think that the two are, are quite highly related. Whenever you have a professor, it's a little bit dangerous to, and particularly a blind professor, he can't see his watch, so who knows how long he's going to talk. Uh, there's sort of good news. I guess you won't have to worry about him reading a speech. Uh, PowerPoint slides, it's kind of interesting to have a blind man lead you through PowerPoint slides. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Ian's going to help me with regard to it. Uh, but uh, uh, in any case, uh, uh, I hope that we're going to be able to cover a lot of territory in a relatively short period of time so that I can leave a reasonable amount of time for Simeon because I'm interested in what he has to say as well. Uh, first of all, let's think a little bit about the construction of the Economic Freedom of the World Index. What is economic freedom? Well, the cornerstones of economic freedom and what always was our guidepost as we thought about developing a measure of economic freedom were really four things. First of all, personal choice rather than collective choice. Individuals are deciding for themselves what they're going to, how they're going to use their skills and resources, what kinds of activities they're going to go into, what they're going to consume, and what they're going to invest in. Personal choice being a cornerstone of economic freedom. Second, voluntary exchange coordinated via markets. Uh, and whenever you put up restrictions interfering with that voluntary exchange, that that deters economic freedom. Voluntary exchange, a cornerstone of economic freedom. Third, uh, freedom to uh, compete in uh, business, in other kinds of activities, enter into occupations. And finally, the protection of individuals and their property, security of property rights. That those are the four cornerstones. And as we thought about how to measure economic freedom, these were always our guideposts. Now, the methodology of economic freedom differs from... Uh, uh, it, the, in the fact that we are, in, in essence, not rating or subjectively evaluating any countries. We're simply using data developed by uh, other parties or data which we use to construct rather straightforward variables let, such as, for example, government consumption as a share of GDP or mean tariff rates or things of that sort that are published in sources like the World Bank's World uh, in. Uh, uh, world Development Indicators, that CD-ROM, as, as well as uh, uh, information from the IMF or from the Country Risk Guide, from the uh, uh, world Com Global Competitiveness Report. Sometimes we get complaints from people in our own network about saying, well, we think our country ought to be higher or we think we ought, they ought to be lower. And we say, hey, we just tabulate the numbers. We're not rating anybody subjectively. We want to the methodology to be such that our subjective viewpoints did not influence the rating of any country. There are 38 components to the index. We arrange them where each of these components are on a 0 to 10 kind of scale. And basically that usually amounts to during a base year taking, uh, say, the, the option that's most consistent with economic freedom, say, if it was no tariff, if it, if it was mean tariff rates, if you had zero tariffs, that would mean that you'd get a 10 and uh, going up to a relatively high level, maybe 50% tariffs, uh, that would mean you'd get a zero. And scaled in between as you go from zero to 50, the, the rating would uh, go up, go down from 10 to, uh, to zero. So essentially, 
uh, putting everything on a zero to ten scale and using these data developed by other uh, parties or uh, straightforward calculation data. Now there are five areas of the economic freedom of the world report. The five areas are uh, first of all size of government and as government gets larger and the market sector gets smaller your rating in fact would, would go down. Secondly, uh, the legal structure and protection of property rights. Thirdly, access to sound money. And fourthly, uh, freedom to trade with, with uh, foreigners, exchange with foreigners, and finally, regulation of, of credit and labor and, and business activities. Now, the slides actually go through, and Ian, I'm not sure you're, uh, uh, we can, I think, go through each of these areas. In area one, for example, uh, I'm not going to go through each of the variables, but in area one, size of government, key variables are like government consumption as a share of total consumption. Secondly, as you have more government enterprises, your rating would tend to go down. Uh, thirdly, uh, marginal tax rates and the income thresholds in which they take a, a, a hold. If you've got a copy of the report, uh, exhibit 1 1 gives you the full details with regard to all the components, not only in area 1, but the other areas as well. Uh, second area is legal structure, where we essentially are getting at the even handedness of the court system, the uh, uh, protection of, of, of property rights, whether or not contracts are enforced in a creditable and even handed manner. And most of those data are from the, uh, uh, in the current index, are from the Country Risk Guide and the Global Competitiveness Report. But the Doing Business Indicators has a couple real nice variables that relate very much to that that we're expecting to integrate into next year's report. Uh, third area, access to sound money, uh, has to do with uh, key variables being sort of a variation in the uh, inflation rate. If you have a lot of variation in the uh, inflation rate, it'll make it difficult to exchange with uh, across time periods. If Can you use alternative currencies? Uh, those are key variables in that area. Uh, fourth area, basic, is, is freedom to trade with foreigners, where we look at things like tariffs and quotas, which are restrictions upon trade. Black market exchange rates tend to uh, restrict international trade and uh, various restrictions upon capital movements are the key variables there. Fifth area, regulation. Uh, regulations that deter uh, freedom of contract between uh, employers and employees, uh, restricting the, the uh, essentially regulations that, that restrict contract handling of dismissal or starting a business via contracting, and uh, 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 price controls, interest rate controls are uh, some of the key variables there. So uh, 38 components in all, five areas. Uh, we essentially uh, look at the uh, averages within each of the areas and then average the uh, uh, area ratings to create a summary rating. So that sort of takes us to what are the, the latest data with regard to the countries that have uh, some variations in the amount of economic freedom. And I think uh, probably the slide, the first slide here gives the uh, uh, 10 highest rated countries. Hong Kong and Singapore are again 1-2 in this year's Economic Freedom of the World Report. Other countries that are, are ranked high are, are New Zealand, Switzerland, United States, uh, Ireland, United Kingdom, Iceland, uh, Luxembourg, uh, all in the uh, uh, top 10. Right outside of the top ten, they're not given on these figures, but uh, Australia and Estonia are ranking 11th and 12th. Uh, the next slide gives uh, data on a number of, of larger countries and where they rank. 
Uh, Germany ranks, I believe, at 17th. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ian. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, Chile is the highest rated Latin American country. I believe it's about 20th. Uh, Sweden and France are sort of in the mid-20s, uh, going up to, uh, I think, South Korea is in, in like 35th. And uh, India ranks 53rd, which is a, quite a substantial increase for India over and extended over the last 15 years. Uh, Mexico is uh, around 60. Uh, going on down, China is, is I believe, 94th, and, and uh, Russia is uh, a little over 100. And Venezuela is like 126. So, uh, uh, give you an idea of, of large economies and sort of where they rank. Uh, the Exhibit 1-2 of, uh, if you have a copy of the book, gives all the data for all 138 countries that are included in the report. Now, the next uh, uh, exhibit deals with the question of sort of what's happened to economic freedom through the years. And the answer to that sort of short answer is there's been some increase in economic freedom if you look at the last quarter of a century. And it's primarily as the result of reductions in, in marginal tax rates. For example, and I'm just going to give you a few things that have contributed here. In 1980, there were 62 uh, countries that had marginal tax rates of 60% or more. Uh, when I last checked in 2004, uh, there were only two countries that had marginal tax rates of 60% or more. So a dramatic reduction in the number of countries that are imposing these very high marginal tax rates that take effect at lower income levels, and as a result, uh, an expansion in, in economic freedom in that area. Better monetary stability. Uh, the 1970s, of course, was a period of substantial amount of monetary instability, high inflation rates. We've had improvement in that area. We've had rela relaxation of international trade barriers. So a number of the components in uh, uh, Area 4 have, have uh, increased and improved the ratings in that area, and that's helped to push up this overall summary rating. So an increase on average of almost a, about a point uh, during, uh, uh, since 1980. Now, you might, uh, uh, all, all this kind of, of uh, leads to the question of, of uh, why does economic freedom matter? And I'd like to think with you just a, a moment about why it is that some countries grow and achieve high income levels, and others tend to stagnate and, and their incomes uh, either grow very slowly or not at all. And I'd like to, in order to get you to thinking about that, Consider how long it would take to purchase a lot of the, the items that you and I consider uh, uh, very commonplace in our homes. Suppose that, I mean, the average wage rate in the United States is roughly about $20 an hour in the, in the private sector. In the government sector, it's higher than that. But uh, so think of sort of if you earn $20 an hour, what could you purchase with that? Well, uh, you could purchase a microwave oven with about, for about $80 or four hours of work. Man, isn't that a great deal? Uh, you could purchase a, a washer or a dryer, a clothes dryer, uh, maybe $400 for about 20 hours of work. You could purchase a DVD player for $60 or $80, three or four hours work. You could purchase that. You could purchase a television set, say a 21-inch color television set for uh, $200, 10 hours of work. Uh, you could uh, purchase a personal computer 
for uh, uh, maybe $1,000, 50 hours of work, which would just think of all the marvelous things it allows you to do. And in my case, it allows me to function. Uh, I read and write electronically, and, and so personal computers, while I sometimes hate them, because they're not entirely reliable, okay? But uh, on the other hand, they allow me to function. Now, why is it? I mean, aren't these things great? How long would it take you to make a television set or to make a clothes dryer or to make a microwave oven? Man, aren't those things a great deal? Well, I venture to say why they're a great deal tells us a uh, a lot about why it is that some countries prosper and grow. That essentially, I like to, to talk about four sources of, of economic growth and prosperity. And one of those, very much related to what I'm talking about here, is gains from division of labor, specialization, economies of scale, because we're producing those items that I talked about, not in the tens, but in the, in the hundreds of thousands, and as a result, producing them in those quantities and economies of scale and the production processes that we use, that they, be, they can be produced very cheap, and they be, become readily available uh, with very, relatively few hours of work. But So it's this gains from specialization, division of labor, and economies of scale, plus gains from discovering entrepreneurship, discovering new and better ways of doing things, new products. Think again about how our living standards have been altered in the last 20 years by new products that weren't even available 20 or 25 or certainly 30 or 40 years ago. I tell my college students, you know, college students absolutely cannot uh, operate without a cellular phone. I mean, they would rather be, uh, you know, uh, out uh, undressed than they would without a cellular phone. I mean, I don't want to uh, better be careful about how far I press that issue, hadn't I? Uh, but things like cellular phones, personal computers, DVD players, uh, laser surgeries, uh uh, various kinds of, of heart uh, uh, stents and things of this sort. These things weren't even available 20, 30, 40 years ago. But you see, it's this discovery of new products, new ways of doing things, and we've experienced enormous gains as a result of that. Now, my point here is that without gains from trade and protection of property rights, trade in this network I like to think of the market as being a network type of good. The networking together of literally tens of thousands and even millions of people, in the case of many products, cooperating to bring those within the budget constraints of you and I. And as a result of those gains from trade, that we're able to achieve this growth in more and higher levels of income. A third factor is that you have institutions that create an incentive to engage in productive activities rather than unproductive activities. That's the genius of the market. It gives the profit-loss mechanism gives producers an incentive to produce things that value people value more than what it costs to produce them. And so it's giving us constant feedback about how people value it relative to production costs. And those things that tend to be uh, get produced are the ones that are valued highly relative to production costs. And uh, uh, finally, investment. That, of course, capital formation, this is something that's been traditionally uh, stressed, that to uh, greater machines and uh, structures and things that will help us produce goods and services off out into the future in larger quantities. So those, I think, are, it's an interesting way of thinking about this is sort of the difference, if you like, between high-income countries and low-income countries. 
is that they're able to experience these gains from trade, that they have an ins institutional policies that encourage productive behavior and encourage investment. Now, let's look at the Economic Freedom Index in light of this. And, and we can go through a number of slides here. Some of you may have seen these slides before. They're in the, uh, uh, in, in the book. But first, looking at the relationship between economic freedom and per capita GDP, broken down by core titles, the top 25%, next 25%, and so on. And so what's the per capita income? And here, the blind man is not going to be able to tell you, but essentially the number of the per capita income of the countries in the top quartile of the Economic Freedom Index during the 1990-2004 period uh, was something in excess of $24,000. Am I right, Ian? Yeah. Okay. And then if you go to the other end, it's a little bit less than $3,000. So about eight times as high income level that these countries that have economic freedom, that can realize these gains from trade related to specialization, division of labor, discovery of better ways of doing things, that sort of thing, and so on. And the countries with economic freedom relative to those without economic freedom. Now, what about growth? Now, actually, one would expect, and if you look at countries that have the same quantities of economic growth, you will actually find that low-income countries tend to go more rapidly than high-income countries, holding the institution's quality or holding the level of economic freedom quality uh, constant. But, of course, that's not being held constant. And when you look at the countries at the upper level of the economic freedom index, they're growing in excess of 2% a year, virtually no growth in the bottom quartile of countries. Most all the countries uh, in the upper quartile have positive growth rates, where a, uh, more than half of the ones in the bottom quartile have, in fact, negative growth rates. So even though they, the ones, as we looked at earlier, in the bottom quartile started off with lower incomes, we might have expected they would grow rapidly because they could borrow technology and things of that sort. But we find just the opposite to be the case. Again, suggesting economic freedom is very important as a deter determinant of, uh, uh, of growth. Uh, what about investment? I mentioned investment is one of those things and certainly is widely accepted in the literature. Uh, I think this next slide, Ian, is on investment per employee, again broken down by, in this case, it's by the countries with less than five economic freedom ratings and then the middle between five and seven and then the top between uh, greater than seven. And we looked at the investment per employee between uh, 1980 and 2000. So this is over an extended time period. And uh, the total investment per employee was, uh, what, about $10,000 for the, the uh, upper group, Ian? Yeah. And uh, less, less than 1,000, I think 800. And interestingly enough, if you look at private investment rather than just total investment, the differential is even greater than that on an employee basis. The next slide looks at... at uh, uh, total investment uh, as a uh, uh, an, an FDI. Uh, am I right on, on, on total and private investment? Total and private investment here, and uh, as a share of GDP. And the interesting thing about this, if you look at investment as a share of GDP between the sort of bottom group and the top group, it's differential but not huge. 18 plus for the bottom group, uh, almost 23 for the top group. Pretty big difference. But look at private investment. Private investment, it's almost twice in the top group uh, what it is in the, in the bottom group. And this is crucial because private investment is going to be driven by this effort to increase the value of the resources. Uh, and so uh, 
that you find, again, a, a huge difference here in terms of investment. Uh, the next slide is on... Uh, productivity investment. Yeah, this is on the productivity investment. So you not only have higher rates of investment, and particularly higher investment, but the productivity of that investment is higher in those countries that have the most economic freedom. Uh, this is, in, indicates as an estimate of the marginal impact, and it's adjusted for things like initial income level and, and some of the geographic variable that Jeffrey Sachs has stressed. And a 1% increase in investment as a share of GDP leads to about a 0.33% 3 increase in long-term growth in the case of uh, the countries with the most economic freedom. Uh, about a little, about 0.2 or 0.19 in the case of the countries with less economic freedom. And interestingly, the payoff from government investment is even less than that. I think it's around 0.17, 0.16 in, in that particular range. So more investment and a higher payoff of that investment. Now all this leads to uh, the situation where because of the greater gains from trade, more investment, more entrepreneurship, that the more economically free countries grow and have higher income levels. But I think there's sometimes this tendency to think, well, income, that's all economists are concerned about, or that's all that, that these people who talk about economic freedom are concerned about. Well, let's look to see how some indicators of quality of life. I think the first one here is life expectancy. Life expectancy of uh, freedom and unemployment. Uh, unemployment first. So uh, you have a lower unemployment rate among countries with uh, a more economic freedom. The next slide is on, on life expectancy. The life expectancy is about 78 years, just under 78 years for the freest economies, 55 years for the least free economies. Uh, variables like, uh, we're going to go through these kind of fast, infant mortality rate, lower in the free economies. Uh, and keep on going, maybe give me a few clues, uh, Ian, what's the next income one? Income level of the poorest. Yeah, some people say, well, poor people may not benefit from it, but this gives the income levels of the poorest 10% in these countries. And again, you see that the poor, like other members of the society, that their income levels increase along with, with others as you in countries that you have more economic freedom. Uh, I think the human development... Yes. Index is, is probably next. The UN's Human Development Index, it, the ratings are higher for the economically free countries. And uh, then last week, we were looking at environmental quality. Environmental quality is, is higher in countries that have more economic freedom. Now, the reason why is, of course, they have more economic freedom, higher levels of income, and when you have higher levels of income, it allows you to have better health care, <laughs> longer, uh, uh, more uh, uh, things like... Uh, uh, the reduced infant mortality rate and other factors that influence our sort of quality of life in a cleaner environment. Now, let me conclude by, by really, I want to make two final points. And one of them has to do with this relationship between legal structure and regulation. We have uh, been analyzing legal structure and, and regulation in, in great detail. And one of the things that we're finding is countries that are heavily regulated tend to have low-quality legal structure. That extensive regulation corrupts your legal system. And actually, these data are, include a, a, a measure that it, it looks at a, number, a couple of the doing business indicators uh, of legal structure, uh, Simeon. And, that the correlation between the, having heavy regulation and legal structure is about 0.71.
If you looked at the relationship between our Area 2 legal structure rating, most consistent with economic freedom, and the corruption index, that countries that have lots of quality legal systems, they don't have much corruption. The correlation, 0.88. So if, in fact, you want to sort of corrupt your legal system and stymie this this incentive to engage in production activity and extreme exchange, the route to do it is have a heavily regulated economy. That will corrupt your legal system and lead to all this kind of rent-seeking type of behavior that is widely observable not only around the world but to some extent in, in our own economy. Now, the final point I want to close with is let me just say that I think that economic freedom is the most underrated variable as we think about the issue of peace and prosperity in the world. And I almost have taken on a personal mission, if you like, to try and elevate it. Uh, You know, in the United States, we place so much emphasis on democracy, and democracy is fine. Uh, And I favored democracy. But economic freedom, in many ways, in terms of our personal life, is uh, certainly it's not the same thing as democracy. If, in fact, democracy led to economic freedom, Hong Kong would not be a free economy. On the other hand, if democracy resulted in economic freedom, India has had democracy for a long time, it would be quite a free economy. So they're not, they're different kinds of things. And I suggest to you that economic freedom is far more important than democracy in terms of promoting prosperity. And if we want to do something to upgrade the quality of people around the world, and I hope that we do, that we need to place a whole lot more emphasis on economic freedom because that's going to be the recipe that will, in fact, work. And not only will it lead to more prosperity, but as our theme chapter by Eric Grosky last year indicated, it will also lead to a more peaceful world. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Jim. Uh, We'll go quickly to our next speaker, Simeon Jankoff, who... Uh, we're very happy to welcome back to the Cato Institute. Uh, he presented the, the Doing Business Report here last year as well. And uh, as I said, he's the lead author of the Doing Business uh, Report. Uh, he is a manager in the private sector vice presidency of the World Bank. That's a pretty long title. I never really understood what that meant. And he's a research uh, fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research. He's also uh, the author of numerous uh, studies in leading uh, economic uh, journals and the participant and the author of what I consider uh, to be some of the most important and cutting-edge work in the question of economic development and I would place maybe about a dozen uh, leading economists in that camp so we're very uh, proud to welcome Simeon back to Cato. Simeon. very much. Um, the way that uh, the Doing Business project started, this is the fourth year, the fourth report that I'm uh, presenting today, so it's a relatively uh, shorter history than uh, the previous presentation that you uh, heard. The way that we started this work is uh, asking one simple question, which is, uh, what makes governments reform? We uh, want governments to reform, to increase the economic freedom, precisely for the prosperity reasons that were just mentioned. Um, so we wanted to start with this very uh, basic operational question. So what, does, uh, what do governments need to do in order to reform? And there are several uh, types of uh, strategies that actually we've seen being pursued over the last uh, decades. 
One strategy is sort of coerce them. We call this the IMF strategy, which is that uh, you just wait for a government to be in trouble, and then you come and say, um, well, if you do a number of things, then um, we are going to basically help you come out of the trouble. We're going to pay you out of this. And this has had various successes and uh, failures, but if you uh, ask some of the recipients of such uh, help now, they'll t tell you that they probably didn't benefit that much from it, and in retrospect, probably it was a mistake even to, um, to ask it. There's, of course, another strategy, which is kind of throw a lot of money at governments and hope that uh, that's going to, um, to help uh, convince them to do so. This is kind of the World Bank strategy of the world. Um, and uh, if that were to work, Africa now would be a very uh, rich continent because over the last 50 years, enormous amounts of money have gone to Africa and uh, very little actually has been uh, happening until very recently. So then thinking about these uh, strategies and their relative merits, we thought, well, since we don't have actually that much money, uh, at least in doing business, maybe we can have a much simpler strategy which would be to encourage the good, encourage the countries that are reforming, and uh, sort of embarrass the bad, the countries that are not reforming. So the way that doing business started is with this very simple idea that if you come up with some uh, quantitative uh, measures of how well governments are moving towards uh, a better environment for businesses, that can uh, also uh, basically reward the people who are reforming, who are moving fast, uh, and in some sense uh, embarrass, punish, irritate, uh, aggravate uh, the people who are not. So we started with that very simple focus four years ago. And as you can see, over the last two or three years, we've built up up to 10 indicators, which are on the left-hand side, uh, of basically how do businesses operate and what do they need, how easy it is to start a business, hire workers, pay your taxes, uh, trade across borders, uh, all the way to how easy it is to close a business. And every year we collect in 175 countries around the world these sets of indicators, asking simple questions like how many procedures do you have to go uh, through, how much does it cost, um, uh, how, uh, how uh, much time it takes to do this, how much bureaucracy is involved in terms of various documents and so on. And every year we document this and then ask the question, who has reduced these burdens on businesses and who has uh, perhaps uh, added additional burdens on uh, businesses? I should also note that going forward in uh, the next year's report, uh, we are expanding the set of indicators to two quite interesting indicators, one which would touch on transparency of this issue of uh, bribery, basically, and we've called it here not paying bribes. Uh, uh, which is probably very useful for uh, businesses to uh, develop. And the second one, uh, also a new indicator that we'll be introducing, is in the area of quality of business infrastructure. So in our next report, we would expand to 12 indicators. Um, but uh, with the indicators that we have now and the annual updating, we basically can give two types of statistics, and I'll briefly uh, summarize this. One statistic is um, who has improved the most over the last year. And here is actually from our latest, uh, latest report. This is the top 10, uh, uh, the set of top 10 countries that have improved the most. So these are the countries where the governments are doing something to increase uh, prosperity. And we would like to encourage them to do more. Countries like Georgia in the former Soviet Union, Romania, uh, Croatia, both Romania and Croatia as part of their bid for European Union accession. You have several Latin American countries, uh, Mexico, Peru, Guatemala. 
you have Ch- uh, China this year is one of the top uh, 10 reformers, and you even have uh, France, uh, which is the only OECD country in this, uh, in this list. In our report, we also have, if you like, the bottom 10 list, uh, where countries like Venezuela this year uh, managed to uh, reform backwards, if you like, in uh, several areas. There are several African countries that did this. Bolivia is starting to go in that direction. So again, we basically point out the successes, but also point out from this perspective of ease of doing business, where is it going uh, going backwards. Um, so from this uh, type of reform, we then can uh, also start aggregating and saying, well, across the world, what are the trends? In this case, what are the regional trends? And consistently, since the beginning of our project, this is the fourth year, we see that the transition economies, the East Europeans, former Soviet Union countries, are the ones that are reforming the fastest. This, in some sense, is not surprising. They started from uh, a, a very centrally planned economy, but every year they are doing more and more. And you would see in a moment that some of them basically have reached uh, to be uh, among the best in the world, and in fact, in the area of ease of doing business, outcompete many of the rich European Union or OECD countries. What's here also interesting to see, and this is very consistent picture from previous years, that the rich countries, the OECD countries, as a pace of reform, are actually faster than many of the poorer regions in the world. So the OECD region as a whole not only is better, as you would see in a moment, in terms of levels of the ease of doing business, but is basically moving faster, getting better relative to South Asia, relative to the Middle East, relative to Africa, relative to Latin America. This year, one of the highlights of the report, and this is the first time that we see this, is that actually the Africa region also started reforming relatively fast, because in each of the past three years, it was not only the worst place to do business, but it also was reforming the least. And we asked also this additional question, where are the reforms taking place, in which uh, areas? And the two areas where uh, Africa is reforming very fast, uh, very recent, uh, uh, very recently, is one is in terms of property registration, uh, which is an aspect of the basic property rights that people have. So half of the reform the reforms over the last year in this indicator happened in Africa. And the other one is in the ease of starting a business, where a third of the reforms globally happened in, uh, in uh, the African continent. These, incidentally, also the two areas where administrative reforms can get you quite far. So very few legal changes, legislative changes, have uh, taken place. We are still to see whether African countries can do some of the more complicated reforms that also require legal, uh, legal changes. Uh, but this is one way to look at uh, uh, at uh, the data. One can then look at a number of um, of uh, other examples of where this reform has uh, taken place, and also the breadth of analysis that the Doing Business uh, project provides. This is one reform that happened over the last year, which is in Georgia. Uh, one of our indicators is business licensing. So in Georgia, we'll look at the construction sector and ask, if I want to do all the documentation that is necessary for me to build a very simple warehouse where many of the environment and, uh, and so on uh, standards do not, may not apply, um, basically how long it would take me and how many procedures, meaning how, di- how many different government agencies would I need to visit. And in, uh, in uh, blue, you see that in 2005, the entrepreneur had to visit 29 different agencies, or actually sometimes twice the same agencies, but had to show up at 29 government offices uh, in order just to obtain all the documentation. So he's not building, actually, the, the warehouse. He's just obtaining the documentation in order to be able to do so. And that would have taken uh, 285 days 
uh, in a good case scenario just to obtain this documentation. There was a very significant reform there that's still ongoing, and as a result, both the procedures and the time that uh, they took on average was halved. Still, it takes 137 days, which is quite long, uh, but uh, half of what it was uh, the year before. So our report for every reform that we uh, document in the world, and last year, for example, there are 213 such reforms around the world, we have these kind of pictures that show the before and after in terms of the areas of uh, regulation. And then I'll conclude the presentation of saying, so we collect all of this data every year, 175 countries, 10 topics. We're adding two topics next year. How do we use this? And since uh, yesterday we had uh, an extensive discussion with the government of Guatemala, so I've brought two pictures from, uh, uh, from uh, our discussions with the government of uh, Guatemala. So Guatemala is one of these uh, countries that it's actually a mixed message this year. It's one of the top ten reformers, so some significant improvements took place. But on the other hand, from the 175 countries in the ease of doing business, it's 118th. So basically a lot of other reforms need to happen. And we listed their relative ranking on each of our top ten indicators. So you can see that in registering property, they've had a very significant reform. So they now rank 26th in the world on the ease of registering property. But in terms of starting a business, they're 130. In terms of dealing with licenses, they're 165. So they're basically in the bottom ten. And so on. So we put together this kind of pictures and then say to the government, based on this and our experience of reforms, these are some of the uh, suggestions that we have uh, for you on where to reform. So in the next slide, for example, and this is, this is, we had this discussion with the Guatemalan government yesterday, we can say reform number one, lower your business startup cost, where you, as I mentioned, rank 130. What can you do? Well, because we have such detailed information on exactly where the costs and the delays and so on are, we say eliminate the minimum capital requirement. You're one of 12 Latin American countries that has, has it still. There are 31, so many countries have eliminated it. Last year alone, China, Japan, Morocco eliminated the minimum capital requirement, which is quite high in Guatemala. Standardize the article of incorporation so you don't need notaries, because currently you mandatorily need to use notaries and lawyers in Guatemala because you do not have standardized uh, articles of incorporation. So every time a business needs to put this together, they need to start from scratch. Portugal did this last year. Instead of going and asking for uh, every time that a business registers to publish it in two newspapers that can take two or three months, just do it online or put it simply in the uh, company registration office, basically just post it somewhere so you don't have to waste so much time. Romania did this. Serbia did this. And if you don't believe us, we can actually give you the information. You can call the governments that we've mentioned here, and you can find out from them so you don't have to believe us that uh, this is what uh, this is the reforms that you need. So here's one example from one country. We actually had listed six things, but this was uh, one of the easier things to, to mention, that we increasingly, we meaning the doing business, team has increasingly gotten into the discussions with government to say, we can tell you where we're behind, and we also can give you some suggestions based on what other countries have done on where you can reform. And you can either believe us, or again, we have easy ways for you to go and check for yourself. So as a result, as we report in the years doing business, in the last 18 months, we have recorded 48 reforms around the world where a reform has started as a result of discussion with the doing business team, or basically the government has taken the doing business data and has said we want to improve over, over this data. Um, 
And, and why improve? Why is the same reason that was discussed uh, just before? Basically for growth, for prosperity, for job creation. Here are the top 10, sorry, the top 30 countries on the ease of doing business. So here's where everybody is looking and saying, well, maybe this index is not that exciting. Maybe I don't really want to be that doing that well on this index. Well, one way to, to see is who is at the top? Do I really want to be one of these countries? And who is at the top is basically a lot of rich countries, Singapore, New Zealand, the U.S., Canada, Hong Kong, very similar to the uh, index that you just uh, saw, a number of Nordic countries. You also have some transition economies that now penetrated this index, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They, uh, soon after the top 30, you see countries like the Czech Republic, Slovakia, now Georgia, thanks to its uh, significant uh, improvement. So, yeah, I'd like to live in these countries. If you look at the bottom 30, 24 of them are in Africa. Uh, so maybe that's not where businesses prosper. We have seen this. So this kind of measurement and uh, basically results of where you want to be and what it brings you, which was very well described in the previous presentation, then incentivize governments. We want to be part of this club. We don't want to be part of the other club that we currently um, uh, belong in. And then why, ultimately, why is that the case? Well, what we found in our many uh, visits every year, we travel to nearly 100 countries around the world doing business team and talk to government and the private sector and the donors, actually, which are much tougher sell on many of these, and try to convince them that this is the only way to, uh, to reach prosperity is to say this is really the only way to create jobs in your economy. And as was also mentioned, basically politicians care about uh, pulling people out of informality, putting them in the formal sector, getting them more jobs, because this is where ultimately they get their support. This is how they get their uh, votes. So what I've shown you here, and which is the picture that we always discuss when we go to government, it's actually not so much about uh, growth. People want to grow, but they're much more concerned of are they going to stay in power for a long time. And that comes with basically creating new jobs. And if you look at this picture, you see that the better you are on the ease of doing business, Basically, the law is your unemployment, the more jobs you create in the, in the private sector. And again, that's really the main way any survey that you ask uh, households, individuals, poor people, what is the one thing that you would like? Um, they don't say, I want health services, I want education services. They say, I want a job. And once I have job and money with it, I can decide how to spend this money, whether it's on health or the education of my kids or building a house. Just give me a, a job. And this is the one area that this, uh, that this uh, index and this kind of work helps to essentially incentivize governments, not by giving them money, not by uh, coercing them into uh, doing reforms that they may later very easily reject, but by saying, if you do these kind of reforms, you're going to get the kind of jobs and you're kind, going to join the kind of uh, group of countries that you really want to be in. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Simeon. We have time for, for questions. If you have a question, do raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation and wait for the microphone uh, when I call on you. We'll take the first question here. Uh, uh, Phil Harvey, the DKT Project. Um, Mr. Gortney, I'd be interested in knowing, and, and perhaps uh, Mr. Jankoff will have some thoughts on this too, a little about the interesting exceptions. Uh, there are clearly exceptions on the human well-being indicators, uh, that is, 
countries like Cuba that are totally unfree on the on your economic indicators, I'm sure, uh, but where life expectancy is relatively long, uh, a more difficult exception to envision would be a country very, very low on your economic uh, freedom scale and yet somehow has achieved uh, uh, a high level of income or vice versa, a country uh, with a lot of economic freedom and is still somehow managing to be poor. Are there any such? Well, first of all, Cuba is not in our index, but I'm sure that if you were, uh, if it were in our index, that it would uh, get a very low uh, uh, rating. So uh, I can't comment directly on that. But with regard to the exceptions of countries that have low economic freedom level and have uh, high income levels, there basically are none. The closest thing to an exception is Israel. Israel ranks at, well, actually, Israel has moved up quite substantially. But uh, say in 1990, uh, 1990, for example, Israel would have been out of roughly 100 countries that were, well, probably 110 countries we were rating at that time. It would have been 75th or so. And it would have had an income in the top third among countries. So it was something of an exception. But there are simply not any countries that, uh, in the bottom third of the economic freedom rating who have been able to achieve and sustain high uh, income levels. I guess, again, the sort of maybe closest thing to an exception now is if you want to think of Venezuela as being a, a, a prosperous country. But Venezuela is actually, you know, uh, Venezuela is an interesting case in that in 19, as recently as 1990, that Venezuela was 53rd out of a roughly 113, 100, uh, more than 100 countries in the economic freedom of the world rating, and it's dropped from 53rd to 126th. Well, its per capita income of Venezuela today is about the same as it was in 1980. Uh, in fact, it, it may be a little bit less than it was in 1980. It's probably about the same now as a result of oil prices going up and pushing its per capita income up a little bit. But there really are uh, not any exceptions. And neither are there exceptions of countries that have, for extended periods of time, say 1990 forward or 1985 forward, had high economic freedom ratings that have not also either achieved high growth rated and moved up to pretty high income levels or that are already at a high income level. So really you don't have uh, uh, ex exceptions, extreme exceptions at either, either end. Just quickly also on the same question. I think for me uh, there is one easy indicator of seeing whether this is a good country and a prosperous country, just asking are people trying to get in or are people trying to get out? And since the boats from Cuba are always going in one day... And coming from a former socialist country, from uh, Bulgaria, where at sort of the heights of uh, socialism, we actually had a very good health system, a very good education system, at least I think so, since I'm a product of it. But it wasn't sustainable. So over time, the moment that the country opened up, because the economic opportunities were not there, in many countries like Bulgaria, you know, between uh, 89, 91, the country opened, and about 97, about a million people left the country. 
people, and I left the country at that uh, period as well. So I guess the point is that unless you have economic freedom, regardless of how much energy and uh, focus uh, you try to put on some other health, education, or however you want to call them uh, social indicators, eventually the lack of economic freedom is going to stifle people, and if they can leave, your best people will leave. And I think that that's what's going to happen at some point. We've seen it a lot in uh, in uh, in Cuba, many people trying to escape. But the moment that you have some more political opening, you would see a lot, a lot more people basically uh, flooding out of the country just because they do not have the economic opportunities that many other countries provide. Take a question right here. Thanks. Uh, Knut Bertelsen from the Norwegian Embassy. A uh, question for Mr. Jankov. Uh, do you know anything about why all these African countries suddenly decided to uh, liberalize their uh, property registration? Was, is there some kind of an organized thing going on? Were they uh, cooperating? Um, well, I must admit that we are somewhat surprised by it. Certainly over the last two or three years there has been a lot of discussion how uh, donors should focus a lot of their energies in Africa. So uh, last year, for example, you know that the G8, uh, essentially a lot of the Glen Eagle Summit was about that, putting more resources into Africa, focusing more on the growth. Interestingly, these resources haven't actually started flowing. So if you ask the question, has, has uh, development assistance this year been higher in Africa than last year, the answer is no, not yet, because it takes a long time for the donors and the bureaucracies to get organized. So I can tell you what it's not about. It's not because more money entered, uh, at least not more donor money entered entering Africa. I think it is big, partly due to globalization. One of the things that we've been very struck by anywhere else in the world that we travel, we travel to Latin America, we travel to Africa, we travel even to country like yours, to Western uh, Europe, and they don't ask us anymore about how their neighbors did. They immediately ask us, how did China do? And it's, at first, we were used to this in the context of middle-income countries. So, yeah, Latin America should be concerned because of textiles and so on. But now, suddenly, Africa has started asking these questions because the Chinese actually compete very successfully in many of the areas that we consider very low cost and nobody else, they have a comparative advantage. Well, actually, Africa doesn't have a comparative advantage in low-cost production because the Chinese are much more efficient in doing so. And recently, of course, they've also entered the high technology, so suddenly you have the French and the Germans uh, also starting to ask the question, well, how did uh, China do? So I think one of the explanations is that with uh, globalization, but also the increased competition, especially from China, means global competition, Eastern Europe as well, suddenly this story that if only the African countries get, get a bit more organized and have a bit more infrastructure, they'll do quite well with the low-cost uh, export is no longer true. They cannot currently because exactly of this lack of economic freedom, cannot outcompete uh, China on many of the very basic things. So it's starting to occur to people, to presidents, to, um, to politicians, that unless something is changed and something very radically is changed, um, um, you know, it's not going, just not going to uh, happen. And part of it is, uh, I think, and one of the interesting but not quite exploited results in our doing business report from this year is that as we collect this information on... Um, on reforms, we've also asked the question, when do reforms happen in the political cycle of a country? And what we find is not surprising, but the magnitude is shocking. We find that 
uh, in the countries that over the last three years have been reforming in our indicators, 85% of the reforms happen in the first 15 months of a new government. So basically, a new government comes, they come on a reform platform, and they do a lot of things almost immediately. If they do not succeed in doing this, you know, the health plan reform in the U.S. is a good example of this, just never happens. And uh, then you say, well, that sort of makes sense for Europe and so on. But in Africa, of course, democracy is a relatively new thing. Ten years ago, most of the African countries were not even democratic. So the advent in democracy in Africa has created some sort of a political competition, which before was missing, which maybe, it's a hypothesis, may also bring more reforms than in the past. Take the question here. University, uh, how, do you, how do you go about getting the information? Who do you talk to? Do you have surveys? Do you talk with the government? Do you talk to private sectors? Do you talk to independent observers, journalists? Who, how do you get your information? This is for both. Um, okay. I think it's for you, Simeon. Um, so we primarily, we design our service with the help of academics globally, but in reality most of these academics end up being in, uh, in, uh, in the U.S. that say in the area of business entry, what do we think are the major possible uh, constraints to businesses? And then we send these surveys primarily to, uh, to uh, private sector, uh, what we call intermediaries, so lawyers, business consultants, uh, accountants, people basically who help businesses set up or hire workers and so on advise them, uh, that have to be locally uh, situated. So we have at the back of our report, we have this list of over 5,000 private sector uh, correspondents that help us every year to set up these uh, questions and answer these uh, questionnaires around the world. We also ask a number of uh, public sector agencies, so in the incorporation of business, the company registrar, in enforcing contracts, the judges, and so on. And we used to think that it's a good idea to list them as well at the back, but in a few, let's say, less democratic countries, they got fired. So uh, we are no longer um, uh, that uh, transparent on uh, that. But in short, we ask both the private sector, and this is our main, uh, uh, main pool, and then we ask the public sector, but more as a validation exercise, and to say, give us all the laws, regulations, uh, fee schedules, and so on, and we collect this. So if you go to our website, doingbusiness.org, we have this thing called the law library where you can find behind every one of our uh, topics what are the laws and regulations that uh, underlie our answers. So you can check in a way our data. Right there, question. Thank you. I'm John Utley with the Atlas Foundation. Uh, can you draw any, what's the common thread that with governments that are able to reform and those that are not? What, what, and what changes that suddenly governments do do these reforms, and why it's it's a political thing. Why are some successful and why are not others? What is there? What are the common threads in governments that are able to to uh, uh, make things better? Um, would you like to start? Uh, I'd be happy to. A actually. Uh, uh, it's a very interesting question, and one of the things that was kind of uh, often brought up in terms of the when we looked at the relationship between uh, economic freedom and, and growth is some people say, well, how do you know that it's not the rapidly growing countries that then decide to reform? 
So we investigated that issue, and what we found is actually you were more likely to make constructive reforms when you were going through difficult periods of time. That it's countries that had had a bad, say, four or five or six or seven uh, bad years and that created the environment where, in fact, meaningful reform was, was possible. So I think in many ways that difficult times are more likely to create an environment for reform than, than good times. Ireland, by the way, is a good example of this. As many of you know, Ireland is a country that is, has uh, become one of the freest economies of the world. But if you looked at Ireland in 1985, it was a basket case. And in fact, it was uh, also in, indicative of the point that Simeon mentioned, that people were moving out of Ireland, that, that there was out-migration. Uh, but essentially what a key thing that led to the reforms in Ireland is their bond rating went down. And when it got to the point where the, their uh, bond, their uh, debt was 120% of GDP and they could no longer borrow funds, they decided they had to cut government expenditures and had to reduce regulations. And, of course, you know the story. Substantial reforms in Ireland beginning in the late 80s and early 1990s, and now we talk about the Irish miracle. But it was the difficult times, not the good times, that led to the reform. And I'm sure Simeon will have additional to add to that in his individual Actually, my, my list, I also started actually with the word desperation. We've uh, noticed that the countries that are most desperate basically end up doing the most, uh, the most uh, drastic reforms. And the only way that you can significantly improve, basically, uh, your, uh, your situation on this kind of economic freedom indices, if in a short period of time you manage somehow to uh, either confuse or to disregard the various lobbying groups, because there are a lot of lobbying groups in society that basically benefit from having a distorted system. And the only way that you can basically bulldoze through these uh, groups is either you have some sort of a crisis, or in the case of many of the transition economies, they're just so fed up with the years and decades of, uh, of uh, lack of economic freedom, that this desperation led to reforms where um, the way that we see it in this report, you know, in a few years we'll be starting to talk uh, a lot about the East, East European miracle. Now we've talked about 20, 30 years of the East Asian miracle, but we see a lot of countries in Eastern Europe that are now not only the average of the European Union, but actually do significantly better than the West European countries. Another reason is having, uh, having an external anchor. So it's unquestionable that the East European countries benefited a lot, politically at least, from saying these reforms are needed uh, because this is the only way that we would enter the European Union. Now, if you ask the question, was really, let's say, a bankruptcy reform or property registration reform needed, where does it say in the EU um, articles? Nowhere. But local politicians could blame a lot and say, well, we really don't want to do this because we know it's painful, but Brussels is asking for this and we just need to do it. Uh, and you can see these external anchors in the EU very clearly. You also can see it in the context of the free trade agreements uh, of the U.S. with uh, Central American countries, where a lot of reform. The reason that Guatemala and Peru are on this list is because a lot of reforms that are happening are happening under the we need this because of the free trade agreements with the U.S. If you look at the agreements, it doesn't say anything about property registration, but it's useful domestically to make this uh, point. And the final one, I think, is this competition with your neighbors or regional competition because of a view which I'm not sure that it's entirely correct, but it helps us so we don't tell governments that foreign, when foreign investors make their choices on where to invest, 
they basically decide this is Armenia, Georgia, or Azerbaijan, or Turkey. We've decided to invest in this region, and then you need to be somewhat better than the rest of your regional uh, competitors in order to um, to attract this. Uh, so foreign investment is another fairly major and over time more and more major reason why we see reforms in some countries. Just a footnote to that, boy, that foreign investment is so sensitive to the quality of the policies of institutions. I find those figures just staggering about how closely related foreign direct investment is with uh, uh, economic freedom. A question way in the back. Ashley March from the Cato Institute. I wondered if either of you or Ian uh, would care to comment on what's happening at the World Bank recently in terms of the difficulty of reaching consensus on dealing with corruption. Could you speak? Uh, it's hard to hear up here for some reason. Could oh, you sp- repeat that? I wondered if anyone would care to comment on the recent problems the World Bank is having reaching a consensus on dealing with corruption. Ian is a good friend of the World Bank, so I'm sure that he has. <laughs> I think that question's not directed to me. It's directed to Simeon. Simeon is a good friend, too. Uh, well, the World Bank has a lot of uh, experience and knowledge with corruption. Um, this this is really an issue that, that, that goes beyond our, our forum, but... Uh, it, there's a real tension at the World Bank because uh, corruption is high among a lot of its clients, and the mission of the bank is to lend. And yet the mission uh, that the bank took on for itself, oh, in the last 10 years was to do something about corruption. And what we're seeing in the case of trying to have the bank fight corruption by lending money to governments that are corrupt is precisely the same problem that it has had with its goals in lending money to governments to, to get any other objective done. It's had very uh, bad experience in that. It's, I would say, uh, in general, not a policy that's going to work or that, uh, that can work. I'm all in favor of getting rid of corruption, but then again, I'm also all in favor of promoting liberalization and free trade and deregulation and privatization and the kinds of things that the bank and, for that matter, the fund have been lending money to countries to do for a long time based on conditionality. So uh, just, just to wrap it up, uh, I don't have the, such high hopes uh, for the World Bank's mission to to reduce corruption for the very reasons that uh, the model doesn't uh, doesn't work, uh, and uh, that's well, I think that the best way for the bank to fight corruption is to stop lending. But really, that's what I've been saying about the best way to promote liberalization too, uh, as far as the bank is concerned. If, if I could just add one footnote to that. I am very concerned that the Millennium Project, Millennium Goals Project, is basically a replay of the 1950s and 1960s. And some of us are a little older. We remember this story about how Walter Rostow told us that just a little bit more aid and, and get these countries in a takeoff period, and then they'll get on this rapid growth path and all this story. And that we tried it in the 50s and 60s, and of course it proved to be disastrous. And we find that the countries that made progress in the 70s and 80s were not the ones that had it, uh, more aid, but the ones that had more economic freedom and made constructive reforms in that way. And I'm very concerned that essentially the, the Millennium Project is going to be a counterproductive project in terms of actually promoting positive institutional and policy changes. And I must say that I think that the, the doing business project at the World Bank is a, a glowing light in the midst of darkness 
of, of the idea that essentially we're going to create a kind of transparency. We're going to provide indicators of what these policies all really are and that our motivation is not that we're trying to bribe somebody or club somebody into doing anything, but is simply to put light on it. And I, I'd like to, to uh, comment our my, my co-presenter on the wonderful job you're doing in that area, and at least that part of the World Bank deserves our, our uh, support unambiguously. Well, that brings up another issue about the World Bank, and that, that is the huge gap that many of us see between what is the uh, research department where a lot of good work is being done in the operations department where a lot of good work can be undermined. And that is something that uh, hasn't changed despite uh, much changing in thinking over the past couple of decades on development. Incidentally, we have a chapter in this year's Economic Freedom of the World report by economist Bill Easterly who looks precisely at these uh, uh, millennium development uh, goals and the, uh, pu the push to achieve them through massive increases in aid. And, of course, uh, uh, the debate that's going on today between him and uh, Jeff Sachs, the advocate of, of massive increases in aid, is, is quite similar, almost word for word, in fact, to the debate that was occurring in the uh, 50s and 60s uh, between uh, Walt Rostow and those and that uh, side Peter and Bauer. Peter Bauer on the other side. In fact, uh, if you go back to those debates, they are almost word for word uh, arguing the same uh, argument that we've already been through. Uh, but we already know how that movie ends. We'll take another question right there. I'm Barbara Bowie Whitman. Until recently, I was with the State Department, and I had the chance to participate in the Summit of the Americas last year. Uh, the U.S. delegation urged that Argentina, who said that the theme of their meeting was reducing poverty and creating jobs, but didn't want to talk about trade, that maybe an important thing to talk about was the kind of thing you're doing, and we specifically wanted in the recommendations of the summit to say the Doing Business Project should be followed closely and its results should be made available to everybody and we'll you know, try to make sure that at conferences these results are distributed. I'm not surprised hearing uh, Venezuela's, knowing their philosophy and hearing their, their report card in your publication and in the uh, Index of Economic Freedom that they rank so low, that they screamed bloody murder about the idea of even mentioning your report in the, in the conclusions of this meeting. But the chairman, Argentina, was also very favorably disposed toward Venezuela's suggestions for other reasons we can understand. I just wonder where Argentina ranked. Argentina, the Economic Freedom of the World Index, has uh, fallen from around, oh, I don't know, I'd, I'd have to go, it, it actually, you, you could look it up in the book, but it, it would have been in, like, uh, the, the 30s down to its most recent ranking is about 80. Uh, so it's decreased quite substantially, and it's it's down into the, certainly the, the latter, uh, roughly the latter 40% at this point. And very similar on the doing business, where uh, over the last year they fell from being 93rd to 101st. So uh, Argentina is one of the countries that uh, the government now is thinking that maybe there is some third way. Um, and we know a lot of countries that have tried to do a third way, so it's, I think, just a matter of time. Um, but... Um, you know, it's not surprising that uh, countries like Venezuela and uh, Argentina are not that excited. 
our attitude is that, again, we want to encourage the people who are truly uh, focusing on reforms. And by putting this type of indicators and saying anybody who wants more information will be able to provide it, let's work with these countries. And I think this creates the type of competition. It's, it's a bit like the World Cup. I think that doing business report is somewhat like a regulatory World Cup. You know, Argentina thinks that they're great, but you know what they did in the World Cup. They failed miserably this time. You know, maybe they'll fail miserably the next time around as well. And then eventually they'll say, okay, we need kind of a new team. And at the point when they're ready to have a new team, we and some other reports like uh, what was just presented would have at least some suggestions. And hopefully at that point they would uh, take them. But there are many countries that at this point, for one reason or another, um, do not want to be part of this. And that's fine. There are other countries that do want, and let's focus our attention there. You know, there's a sort of competition, too, among uh, pu publications, uh, n not so much between these two publications, but each one of them has produced uh, publications of a similar kind at the country level. I know that Mexico has produced its doing business report for the states and localities in Mexico, and now you have one for Brazil as well, I think. The Economic Freedom of the World uh, report is also being done at the national level. It has been done in India and in China and in Argentina, and there are some others that are being planned, and uh, it's surprising how consistent some of these findings are with the relationship to uh, other factors. We have time for one last question, and we'll take it right there. Juan Carlos Hidalgo, International Policy Network. Just a follow-up from the previous question. If we, if we look at Argentina, Argentina is experiencing high growth rates, especially because of high commodity prices. How, how do you measure this up in the, in the economic inter, uh, index freedom? Um, we see countries like Equatorial Guinea also experiencing 24% growth. Uh, do you, how, how do you deal with this? Well, let me just say that uh, commodity prices and things of that sort can uh, result in, in uh, growth being very attractive for short periods of time. But let's see what it is over long periods of time. We are not very interested in sort of year-to-year -year changes in economic growth, but we're interested in, in how growth performs over a decade or over a 10- to 15-year period. And that's where that the sort of business cycle kinds of factors, changes in commodity prices, these other kind of dynamic factors – they tend to sort of even out if you look at growth over long periods of time. And if you want to, you know, I think it, if you're thinking about Latin America, look at the growth rate of Chile, say, over the last 15 years, vis-a-vis -vis the growth rate of countries like Argentina and Brazil. In Asia, look at the growth rate of India, which India, as I indicated, has had very substantial increases, particularly since 1990, vis-a-vis -vis the growth rate of Indonesia, which has gone the other way. Uh, and that you find that if you look at growth rates over extended periods of time, that it's uh, economic freedom and these gains from trade and specialization and capital formation that I talked about, they're the kind of things that result in sustainable long-term growth. And that's the, the, the key thing that comes out of economic freedom. And uh, you find that there's a very close relation between the countries that that move toward economic freedom and sustain those increases in their long-term growth rates. One final case would be the UK. Remember we used to talk about the British disease? Remember that? Back in the 1970s particularly? Well, Britain has, uh, uh, during the 1980s, had substantial improvements in economic freedom and it sustained those higher levels of economic freedom. And now the recent per capita growth rates of, of England are higher than, for example, countries like France and Germany and, and, and Italy as they move toward more economic freedom. 
the relationship is, is, is quite close in terms of this economic freedom and sustainable long-term growth. Well, I'm convinced about that, but it's uh, a little bit more difficult to, to concentrate the minds of Argentinian policymakers and the Venezuelans right now that even Russians that have high high growth rates and are benefiting from the boom. So They'll be, they'll be convinced when they go through that desperate stage. <laughs> well, that's coming. That's coming. And that's the silver lining of crises. So I want to thank everyone for coming today, and especially our two speakers and for the work they're doing. Thanks very much.